Hey, it's Amy, and I'm popping into the feed right now to tell you that I believe we're creating something together here on Threshold. You, me, and the whole team that makes this show. We're making a meeting ground for people who want to think and feel and learn about this unbelievably fascinating and beautiful planet. It's a pretty special place in the audio landscape, but we need your support for it to grow and thrive. There are lots of ways you can help. You can make a donation and also make introductions. Mention the show to a friend or a coworker. Share an episode with your network. Your recommendation is how more people will find this community and join the conversation. Learn more about how you can help at thresholdpodcast.org. And thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and my guest today is Hank Green. I think that the biggest thing that we make as people is ourselves. And like, this is a lifelong project, and it takes forever, and it's like, that it, you never stop, and it's hard. Many people first encountered Hank through a video blog that he created in 2007 with his brother, author John Green. It's called Blog Brothers, and it made Hank and John early YouTube stars. Their tagline is, Raising Nerdy to the Power of Awesome. And the community that rose up around them calls themselves Nerdfighters. Vlogbrothers continues to this day and now has more than 3 million subscribers and more than 800 million total views. But at this point, it's kind of a side hustle. Hank's first love was actually science. And as his online following grew, he began to use his platform for science communication. Through his programs SciShow, Crash Course, and other online projects, Hank has become an in-home science teacher for millions of kids, teens, and adults, covering everything from black holes to bivalves. I wanted to talk to Hank about how he has harnessed the personality-driven world of YouTube to inspire people to get more curious about and fascinated by the world away from the screen, and how he makes complicated scientific information accessible to a wide audience. I spoke to Hank in person and indoors, unmasked, back when that was still possible, in January 2020. Hank, good to be with you. Hi. Hi. So I just want to start out talking Vlog Brothers a minute first before we get into more sciencey stuff. Uh-huh. Um, what were you and John setting out to do when you started it? Well, I mean, there's the, the sort of simple version of that story, which is largely to have a shared project that we did together as adults. Uh, John moved away when I was like 13, before that even. Uh, he went to boarding school. And so we'd never really known each other as even, you know, adolescents, really, um, much less adults. And and I thought he was very cool and he was very into online video and he thought this would be a fun thing uh, to to get involved with. And because he was so into it, I was immediately got way more into it. This is like a you can look through all of my like what I was listening to in any given year. And it's because John like offhandedly said that he liked this song. And then I listened to it 2000 times. <laughs> uh, so that's just sort of like my younger brotherness believing without question that this was a valuable thing because my older brother liked it, which was really valuable because most people at that moment in 2007 weren't thinking like, oh, YouTube, what a revolutionary technology. What a world-changing platform. It was like, this is a dumb thing that is happening on the internet. But I was like, this is going to be as big as 
TV. It's going to be like a bigger shift than the shift from radio to TV. And, uh, and, and I think that like once I had the time to look at it and once I had the sort of inspiration to look at it, anybody would have come to that conclusion, but most people weren't being pushed to, to be sort of critical of it, to look at how it was functioning, to look at what it was enabling. And, and that sort of set me up to sort of like push a lot more of my life and time into a thing that was growing really fast. And that ended up being a really good for my career thing. <laughs> What's yeah. the age difference between you? Three years. Oh, it's just three years. Yeah. Huh. It was enough of a difference that like we played together. And when we were young, you know, I was like six and he was nine. And like they like there were these three kids, John, Matt and Andy, who are all the same age. And there were three kids who were all my age. And we were just like, oh, they're so cool. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Pretty adorable. Yeah. So um, what I wanted to do here, what I was planning to do was to do a rapid fire. Um, you, I give you a word and you define it from the Vlogbrothers lexicon. Oh, but then I discovered I didn't need to. There is a thing. Because there is a website it, it exists. And <laughs> so for listeners who are not familiar, there is an entire world uh, inside Vlogbrothers that has its own uh, gang sign, <laughs> its own sort of uh, vocabulary. And I just want to play the first couple minutes of this video just to give folks a sense of your vibe. Is this a, when was this video from? 2009, I believe. Okay. So or a couple yeah. years in. Yeah. Hi there, this is John Green. And I'm Hank Green, and we are the Vlog Brothers on YouTube. And we are making this video a frequently asked questions video for the purposes of answering some questions that are frequently asked. People are often confused. Like, for example, what is a nerdfighter? A nerdfighter is a person who, instead of being made out of, like, bones and skin and tissue, is made entirely of awesome. So you're saying that nerdfighters don't fight nerds? No, we're clearly... Pro nerd. Nerdfighter is basically just the community that sprung up around our videos. And basically we just get together and try to do awesome things and have a good time and fight against World Suck. What's World Suck? World Suck is kind of exactly what World Suck sounds like. It's hard to quantify exactly, but you know, it's like the amount of suck in the world. So Hank, what's DFTBA? DFTBA is an acronym. No, it isn't. It is not an acronym. Acronyms are pronounceable. It is an initialism. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, DFTBA, what is DFTBA? I cut you off there. Sure, yeah. D don't forget to be awesome. But yeah, just sort of a, like a reminder that um, we all have uh, in us the ability to suck, um, and and the ability to be awesome. Yeah, right. And and uh, <laughs> so it's very weird to watch those old videos and be like, who the hell edited that? I know it was me, but boy, did I suck at uh, uh, yeah. But like that. Being a productive person isn't something that just happens. Being a, like a good citizen, being a good friend, being like all that stuff is work. And, and we have to work on all of our relationships, whether that's family or friends or business or, you know, it's citizenship. Um, and, and like that's, you know, and, and there are always times when we're not, when we don't live up to our expectations or when we let our friends down or ourselves down and, uh, and like not to assume that, the default state is just being sort of good at life. Um, and that's something that we work for. That's and really beautiful. Yeah, it, it, it caught on really well. And uh, it's the name of our merch company now. And, uh, and it, it resonates with people. I have to tell you a quick story. I was at a conference somewhere and uh, 
just doing the chatty thing you do at conferences mm-hmm. and I said something about being from Missoula and they're like <gasps> John Green is from Missoula. And I said, <laughs> so oh, no, close, it, no, close. no, it's Hank. She said, no, no, it's John. Said, <laughs> no, it's, sure. it, it's Hank. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but that just led her, like, she got tears in her eyes and was like, DFTBA means so mm-hmm. much to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you have this experience over and over and over. And um, I, I think it's, um, it, it seems to me like it's not only reminding people that it's possible to suck and that we have to work to not suck, mm-hmm. but don't forget to be awesome means that you have the awesome. Right. You don't have to go get it. You've got it. Yeah. You just have to remember to and use you it. You do have to remember. And, uh, and, and ugh, yeah, there, that has, has sort of like had all these different ways of existing and like, you know, like there, there is some, um, there, there was at one point. This is a long, long time ago that there was a push to be, to be like, no, like we have to remember that we're always awesome. And I'm like, well, there is that. Like that is a thing, but that's not what this is saying. Like, th- like the, the intrinsic value and the, the meaning that we have in just being people, and you know, like that has intrinsic value. Being a person is valuable. We should protect all people, regardless of you know their you know impact on and contribution to society, even when they are. Uh, do Super like sucky. do terrible things like there's still you know like we protect people but that's not what this thing is about like this is about you know a guide for folks who are trying to do their best that kind of segues into um something really interesting i think about vlogbrothers which is that it could have so easily been two bros being super broy and <laughs> being really yeah, you know well. and feel and making and, and sort of maybe feeling exclusive or, or or just could be you know guys getting together to put down women or you know who knows what yeah. all the different things that mm-hmm. it could be and instead it feels like it was very self-reflective and very vulnerable kind of from the get-go mm-hmm. um and that that feels like one thread of like Hank Greenness that was, you know, obvious there from the start. But there's this whole other side of science guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you came to University of Montana to get your master's in environmental studies, I mm-hmm. believe. And you started this blog, Eco Geek. But Vlogbrothers wasn't super sciencey. There are sciencey episodes, and there were more sciencey episodes before we started SciShow, which sort of scratches that itch for me. Um, just a separate show on YouTube, and. Uh, but, but yeah, it's sort of in the early days of YouTube, everything was very personality focused, everything. There were no formatted shows. There were no shows that were about a topic. Everything was about a person. And there are still lots of things that are personality based on YouTube, but of course there's also lots of other stuff. And, and that let us kind of do whatever we wanted to do on any given day. And this was necessary because we were making in the beginning five videos a week between us. And you can't make five videos a week and have them all be like super high quality or um, really well researched. You know, science videos are obviously harder to make because you have to do a bunch of research beforehand. And and that meant that it was like it was sort of whatever was authentically interesting to me belonged on the channel. Uh, yeah. And, and so like we were making content that was like really like what we wanted and it was about us. It was about what we found interesting. And there was nothing, there was no like strategy to be like, we need to be good people. We need to not be bro It was like, we're going to make content the way that we want to. And right now there's a lot of nerds on YouTube anyway. There's a lot of sort of like Harry Potter was ending at that time. And so there was a lot of overlap of the Harry Potter audience trying to find new things. There were a couple of other online video projects that ended around when we started. And those people were sort of looking for new communities to be a part of. Mm. And 
Like now there is, of course, lots of bro-y stuff on the internet. But at that time there wasn't as much because the bro-y people hadn't got like – you know, didn't feel comfortable. Like, the internet wasn't their space yet. Yeah, the nerds were the vi- the vanguard. Yeah. Uh-huh. What I think is interesting looking back on it is that there's this there's this very sciencey part of you that was developing, mm-hmm. and then there's this very, like, emotionally vulnerable, you know, self-reflective part of you that we're watching play out in, in, mm-hmm. in front of the camera. And now it feels like these two threads have, have merged, you know? And I, I'm just curious, um, how did that happen? Was it through Vlogbrothers that you started to become a science communicator? Well, yes and no. That was my dream job. I have a biochemistry undergrad degree. And like the thing that I liked most about biochem was not lab work. It was learning about it and it was talking about it. It was teaching other people. I would like I had the room that people would come to to be like, Hank, I don't understand this thing, which only for biochem stuff and organic chem, not for like physical chemistry or calculus stuff. Like just for, I just want to be really on the table here that I was not tutoring people in calculus. Um, <laughs> don't want to pretend to that. And uh, so that was, that was what I always wanted. And when, when Vlogbrothers sort of got big, one, it was sort of being defined by our brotherhood. And so it was weird to have too many episodes be about the circulatory system or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and also it was personal and it was about our lives in the beginning. We've moved away from that as the audience got bigger because it got less comfortable to be have it be about our lives when there are like 200,000 people or 400,000 people watching. You're just like, I suppose. Yeah. Seems like a strange thing to be uh, commodifying in that way. There are lots of people who do it and they have different relationships and that's fine. But it felt weird to me. And so we, we scaled that back. Um but those those have always been different parts of me and and I think to me like there's sort of two different reasons and this is one of those demographic clashes that we have at SciShow um where there's there's two big things that inspire people to watch SciShow one of them is like genuine curiosity and there's overlaps between these things of course there's genuine curiosity and just like passion about like the world is so freaking weird and I get to find out about that and and I will have a fact that I'll get to tell somebody and their eyes will light up the way mine lit up. And then there's sort of a how I feel valuable as a person is in comparing myself to other people. And and this is my wealth. This is how I sort of exercise my internal power over other people is that I know more science facts, is that I have a like a more correct understanding of the universe. And people who like cling to these old ways of understanding the world are are hurting themselves in the world and like and and I want to break that mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And and like I agree that like the quest for knowledge is the right quest. But I like really try and separate in my head that out from judgment of other people and like comparison of my myself. And because otherwise it's like unpleasant. Like it's just it's it's a it's abrasive and aggressive and Yeah, well it's an unpleasant way to be, but it's also an unpleasant like it's an unpleasant for other people, it's also unpleasant internally. And I have that of course. That's one of my like we all have different ways that we value ourselves and find meaning and like of course I have pieces of me that it's about comparing myself and I wanna succeed to have revenge on the people who succeed and <laughs> suck and all that kind of stuff. But I yeah, that's something that I recognize as bad fuel and don't want to feed it. Well, that's actually at the heart of one of the things I wanted to get into with you because I feel like the magic of what you're doing is that you both know a lot of stuff. It's clearly everything is really well researched and and deep. It's mm-hmm. not this is not fluff. Yeah. But 
there's this sense of play and wonder mm -hmm. and you bring some of that what feels to me vlog brothers -y energy of emotional vulnerability into it right and um and I was going to ask you how intentional that was, but it sounds like it's very intentional. It's well, it's intentional in that it's it's intentional in me. Like I think that the biggest thing that we make as people is ourselves, and like this is a lifelong project, and it takes forever, and it's like it, that you never stop, and it's hard. Um, so I work on it internally, and then when I'm talking to the camera, all of that is just it's as long as like I've set myself up the right way, it's like I've created this. Uh, this rubric or an algorithm for how to understand the world and then like I it's it becomes kind of impossible to to not have it carry over into the content I wanted to talk to you about vocab because I feel like there's this thing in science communication where sometimes in the interest to communicate there's this pressure to use very simple language or to like spend a lot of time explaining every term mm -hmm. and I feel like you bring people along but you're not afraid to bust out like some serious vocab just a couple examples I wrote down, phospholipids, protobionts, but there's also this humility that you demonstrate. Um, I want to play another bit of tape here. This one's from Crash Course. So the first living things were prokaryotes, single-celled organisms with no nuclei that were probably pretty similar to the archaea that we find living today in hydrothermal vents, sulfur hot springs, and oil wells. And I apologize for pronouncing archaea wrong for the entire biology series. My bad. <laughs> like, to me, that is where the magic is at. Because how many people can yeah. spit out a sentence with all of that in it and then also be like, and I messed up. <laughs> and and I didn't just mess up, like, once in an entire series. And it's, it's charming. And I, I wonder, you know, do you feel like there is something there that you that can be a model for other people who are trying to communicate science and and not yeah. doing it as well <laughs> well i think like as scientists sometimes we get into a place where we are we're we're so used to communicating with each other and there's all these shortcuts and they are necessary and they're good and like there's nothing wrong with the shortcuts when we're communicating with each other and then and then the other piece is that i i find almost regardless of the 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 topic i'm traveling in that experts have forgotten what's interesting about their field <laughs> because what's interesting to them at this point is like way over here and it's like this thing is slightly different than this thing and you're like that I have no idea what either of those things are and like the fact that they're slightly different seems especially uninteresting. So, well how did you do that because it feels to me like somehow you've hung on to your wonder and your curiosity and your willingness to be wrong even as you've been learning yeah. stuff upon stuff upon well, stuff. Well that's really about uh, studying broadly and I just like I I, could, I couldn't, I was so bad at getting super hyper-specific. And this is a problem that a lot of students have is, you know, you you really enjoy your first three years of school, uh, of college, and then you have, you know, your fourth year and you're like getting really specific and you're like, oh, God, it feels like now I'm deciding what to do with my life. Like, if I really go all in on this and then I get a PhD in this, like, this is what I'm doing forever. Like, yeah. it's going to be ribosomes from here on out. And I'm 20 years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that... That for me, like I like my first, you know, like after school job, I worked in a lab. I was the only person. I ran the lab all by myself. It was quality control. It was really boring. I couldn't like I there was no one to talk to. Like it like it's it's hard to go to work eight hours a day and not see another person for six months on end, which is what I did. And I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, we need to hire someone else, or uh, you need to give me a dog. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, um, and it wasn't, you couldn't even listen to audiobooks because the work was too intense. Like, um, I had to be paying attention all the time. It's just like, no. Yeah, yeah. that's so, it's very yeah. much 
square peg round hole. So yeah, I I you know coming out of that experience, it was like I need to look more at what I'm interested in, and so my my environmental studies graduate degree was focusing on communication and journalism. And that was just like, I have this base knowledge. Like, I know how chemistry works. I know some about physics. I know some math. I know some bio, like, biology stuff. I'm, like, super into evolutionary biology. And, like, that's a big, like, that's a strong enough trunk that I can sort of get what's happening with most things uh, pretty fairly quickly. But I don't have all of the built-up knowledge of, you know, like I already I've known this stuff for 10 years. And so I forgot that it's interesting. Yeah. 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 So that that's sort of and and I, that's, you know, it's kind of what we look for when we're looking for writers at SciShow and Crash Course is people who, um, you know, had robust educations in undergrad um, and maybe some grad school or or all of grad school. And then we're like, but I like I want to know more than just my topic. Like mm. the, the what's interesting about this to me isn't isn't really discovering that new thing, which to some people, that's it. Like you're going to know something at the end of this day that no one has ever known before. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. Like that's what drives a lot of scientists. But people who that's not doing it for them are like, I just like to know things. I don't care if I'm the one who figured it out. I just want to know all this stuff. Yeah. And so that's sort of what we're looking for is people who want to, who are just have that passion and that curiosity, who want to share it with other people. So can you just do quick definitions? Like what is SciShow? What is Crash Course? Sure. SciShow is uh, science news and interesting things about the world and about the universe. And it's just, this is cool. The world is cool. We're talking about it. And sometimes that's what happened today and sometimes it's what happened 150 years ago and they tend to be lengthwise they can be anywhere from two minutes to 15 minutes as opposed to crash course crash course is all like this is education for people who are currently in school <laughs> like crash course is unlike every youtube video in the world and that most of the views come after it's uploaded like scishow videos get all their views in the week they're uploaded crash course videos get views before the ap tests uh-huh. you know that like people are using it to study so it's a it's a study tool and uh their episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long and we're taking on topics that people are are actively learning and so there are some people who watch it for fun it's mostly watched by students and teachers there's so many nature or science videos that are really elaborate you know we're like out on the serengeti Mm -hmm. or we have huge graphics showing us the planets moving around us Mm -hmm. most of what you do we're just looking at you talk and there's little things that pop up on the sides Mm -hmm. and and it's wildly successful i mean wildly so what can we learn from that should we be trying to teach about nature and science in just a simpler way um or is it just the power of hank green's personality (laughs) (laughs) i think part of what we learn from that is that there there is a lot of Uh, gatekeeping in science communication. So like getting images of the Serengeti is a, you know, minimum, you know, six figure proposition. Um, And even if you want to use stuff that other people have filmed, like you don't, you're not even going there. You're licensing that footage. The prices of that stuff is astronomical. Now, some of that is starting to change a little because tourists are going and then they release their content in the Creative Commons. But it's not going to be like good footage. It's not going to be the, like that stuff that you sit there for days and days and days waiting to get that one shot. And that's like it should be expensive. But that doesn't mean that there's no other way to do it. Mm-hmm. And and what you know, 
what YouTube has taught me is that like the world is really interesting. And if you're going to try and compete on TV, yeah, you need to make planet earth. Like you, that stuff, if, if you want to like get somebody, like make somebody's Netflix subscription worth it. But if you want to find something interesting about the world, then it costs nothing. There's <laughs> like, like I have a friend who makes a show called technology connections. That's just like the elegance of your toaster. Like the, you have no idea how cool your toaster is until you hear this guy talk about it. <laughs> well, what it makes me think about is like the early days of citizen science, you know, in the Renaissance, after the Renaissance, when everybody's like, mm, we right. can all just go out and discover stuff. Well, as long as you're very, very wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> they were all, they were all lords. Like white, male, and yeah. wealthy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but still, it yeah. was, even still, it was, it it was not only yeah. people in labs. It was like, I'm going to go out and learn something Absolutely, yeah. and share it. And, yeah, and I'm, I'm just going to go on the beach and I'm going to be like, these fossils have been here the whole time, but nobody's ever looked at them the way that I'm looking at them. And now I understand like that, you know, like a couple of paradigm shifts happen and suddenly the whole world opens up to, you know, evolutionary biology. Yeah. And uh, do you see yourself as part of that tradition? Not, I mean, hopefully, I like I inspire people to like do good science, but I don't. I don't really consider myself part of the uh, the story of like the history of science. But I, I do feel that way about media. That like, and I definitely see myself as part of the history of media, and that's something that I, uh, and and the, and like media is extremely important. You know, like n never before have we been as aware as that as we are now. And uh, and and I think that, like, obviously, the tools of the Internet can be used very badly. And, you know, that the the flood of people onto this space, and uh, you know, into a space that, like, we used to sort of just sort of assume credibility. Um, and it's remarkable that there are there are lots of really credible spaces on the Internet. But like the the flood of both sort of credulous people and also, you know, bad actors onto the platform um, or just like sort of unstable folks who who actually believe the conspiracy theory or whatever mm -hmm. um, has it, like, you know, it, it's it's been a bit of a hit to my self-worth to be like I am part of this tradition that is like, you know, not. 100% good is it more than 50% good I hope so but like at this point who knows mm. and uh and I and like you know I kind of wrote a whole book about struggling with that uh because the you know un understanding both like the sort of motivations of fame like why I have been interested in, in gathering an audience both the good reasons and the bad reasons and also how um you know how we can get caught up in uh, you know, b really, you know, believing the things that are in our own self-interest, which is, of course, something we all do. Mm -hmm. um, but that that can uh, that that can cause a lot of tension and a lot of and you will just go out there and, you know, take the turn yourself into a tool, into a weapon of the culture war and uh, and forget your own humanity or even like invite your own dehumanization. We'll have more of my conversation with Hank Green after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and my guest today is Hank Green. Hank is a true polymath. He's a musician, a podcaster, an entrepreneur, a science communicator, and an author. 
His first novel, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, and its sequel, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, both made the New York Times bestseller list. The books are centered around a character named April May, who, like Hank, got famous on the internet, albeit for very different reasons. I don't want to say too much about what happens in the book because I don't want to spoil the fun for people who haven't read it yet. Um, but I do want to talk to you about what it was like to inhabit this character, April May. Um, tell us about her. Who is she to you? Um, I mean, she's her own person. Uh, you know, like I think that every every I've never been able to write a character who isn't at least part like kind of me, but with different dials turned up to different or down to different levels. So April is like. April kind of is, to some extent, you know, partially what I think might have happened to me if this had, if I started to get famous on the internet in like my early 20s as opposed to my late 20s. Like I was married when this happened to me and I, you know, I didn't have a house, but I'd had a career, you know, before. I'd, I'd had other sources of self-worth and I've watched a lot of my friends get famous in their teens or early 20s. And this is the first job they have. Their first job is to be famous. And the first validation they get is is this level of validation. It's just thousands or hundreds of thousands of people telling you how amazing you are. And that is a that is a very hard thing to come back from. So like this inevitably doesn't last forever. You know, it doesn't it does not last your whole life. It oftentimes does not last even a couple of years. And finding where your self-worth comes from after that level of adoration or or like um you know it it's you know i think that april describes it in the book as like being a balloon that like stays the size that it is but then when the air goes out you just flop to the ground and it's like i can never be taut again i can never yeah. be like a firm happy balloon i'm always going to be a little floppy and unfilled yeah um and i you know like i felt a lot of that stuff and like have gone through plenty of cycles at this point of being like more and less and more and less popular on the internet and and having people also you know one thing that april taught me is that part of what you want when you get famous is to be dehumanized you want people to forget that you are a human you want them to read us weekly and say i can't believe that they also go to the grocery store you want but you want it in the positive ways. You want people to just imagine you as two to three really positive characteristics. Like he's a great football player, very charitable and handsome. Like those are the, that's what you want. Like you, and and th- and that's like, that's what you, you hire human beings to tell that story about you. Mm-hmm. To do this And many people believe it. Yeah, of course. Millions. <laughs> yeah. And that's what, that's the whole thing. And, and then you say something wrong or, you know, you do something wrong or just like somebody lies about you. And the and but the and the dehumanization goes both ways. Uh-huh. Like you now have all like people want to sort of imagine you in the worst possible light. And like now having this insight on this through like having done it, like been through it myself, like been sort of crucified by certain parts of the Internet, like right wing parts of the Internet. And um and then uh, and also had like that, you know, a lot of appreciation come my way. Um, More than appreciation. Yeah. yeah. Like the tearful adoration. Thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And like so having that insight sort of like I will see people going through these struggles and be like, I 
can explain this to you in like five words. I just need you to listen. But they're so big and they're so outside of, you know, any. Uh, yeah. And and also like they want to be outraged. They want to feel like they're they're the victim, even though they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Or, you know, in some cases you see this with people who make hundreds of millions of dollars a year mm-hmm. where they're like they're somehow convinced themselves that they're the victim. And they're like, the press isn't treating me fairly. And I'm like, dude. Who the fuck cares? Like, <laughs> on the like, like I'm so sorry that you didn't get to have only your one simple story told about you. Yeah, and that now something has been complicated, and and maybe that is maybe that is taking something away from from your audience, and that's something I worry about. Is like, you know, if people have, you know, part of their identity tied to our community or to me, that when, you know, something tarnishes that or you know makes that look complicated then then like that's a you know it's one of those moments and we all have these moments where we have to reassess our identity and feel really uncomfortable and it sucks but like that's also, called growth that's okay <laughs> yeah. like yeah and it kind of goes back to the science part i mean that is the that's what we have to do in science is like we learn stuff that's like what mm-hmm. we're not the center of the universe yeah Damn it. It was so much more convenient that way. It hurts. Yeah, we worked really hard to make this model work, and it just didn't. Yeah, it, it, it complexified. And, um, you know, one of the things that's that's interesting to me about April as well is that she's living at this intersection of the best and the worst of the Internet. I mean, so mm-hmm. much of the story could not happen without all the collaborative. Well, it, yeah. the story could not happen without the, without all the collaborative yeah. elements yeah. of the Internet. It's also, you know, the ugliness and the division and the way that it can be used as a tool for hatred. Mm-hmm. Um you're you were just alluding to this you are living also in that intersection and how much of writing her was your attempt to just work through that that's uh, yeah that's like i i have been wanting to write a book for 20 years um and you know this one took me five ish um but even it but but like those first three years were very unproductive until i found that i was like oh, I don't want to just write a story about like this really interesting and kind of scary thing happening to this young woman. I want to like write a story about what it's like to be an internet person, you know, like to have this be your job, which is a really un- uncovered, under-examined thing um, that is becoming kind of common, you know? Like there's a lot of people who have, you know, some level of internet fame or notoriety or infamy and... And I like that's the best. That's the most rewarding feedback I get is from those kinds of people who are like, I had this video go viral and like I'd read your book and it helped me through the process so much mm-hmm. that like I, you know, like I feel like I handled it in a really healthy way and I would not have <laughs> without that. And and like, of course, that's not like the biggest market in the world. So if I'm not just <laughs> writing a book for those people, but it's really helpful um, to hear that feedback because that that's sort of a lot of what I wanted to get at. and And also that like, we need to tell a different story about fame now. And because there's a wider group of people becoming famous now and famous for different things, um, you're maybe kind of changing what fame means. I mean, you and John got really famous, not in spite of your nerdiness, but because of it. Your blog was called Eco Geek. Your community is called Nerd Fighters. And there's this like, we're outsiders. We're this yeah. kind of group of underdogs. And I, I feel like maybe the question that's predictable that would follow from that is like have you ever felt like an underdog Hank but I think that's obvious and so I want to ask a different question I want to ask the question what 
what are some times or have there been times when you've seen this group of, of underdogs and outsiders who you've gathered into this fun and loving and open community become the thing that they abhor, become bullies, become that's Yeah, I think this is a really important thing for nerds of all kinds to look at. Um, you know, when I was in high school, like people punched me for fun. And like, that's a thing that happens to people. And like, but like now... I am I am the powerful one and like understanding that transition and when it happens and it happens for a lot of people and then they don't notice it happened and they and like and they and I think that we all want to think of ourselves as powerless but just like if you have a high speed internet connection you're one of the most powerful people in the world if you are an american if you like have food stability if you you know especially like if you own a house like that like there's so much uh, inability to understand th- like the reality of our like position of privilege as like as not this is not like a conversation just about race it's like a huge thing we don't recognize we don't talk about the privilege of wealth I don't get it and it's so everywhere and it's so taboo I mean I get it I know exactly why we don't talk about the privilege of wealth it's because like if if people understood it it would be a problem the world would yeah have to change yeah because it feels really unjust and you know why because it is yes and that statement right there is something i really wanted to ask you about it's a big part of your vlog brother stuff but even even in your science communication there's there's so many meta levels going on we're not just learning science content you're you're imparting like a whole set of ethics. Like we have a responsibility to look at our privilege. And when science questions lead us into moral dilemmas, we have to grapple with that. And and at the same time, you're imparting like a confidence to the viewer. You're communicating like you are smart. You can get this. I don't yeah. care who you are. Mm-hmm. And I think all of that combined is part of what helps the actual like scientific information to really land. And I'm wondering... Is there something that you're doing there, some combination of things that you wish other science communicators did more of? Like, do you have something to teach there about how to do this? Well, I think that, like, I think all great communication begins with empathy. And I think that, like, trying to understand your audience is the most important thing that any communicator does. Like, if you're a stand-up comedian, you walk out, you have to look at that audience and decide what jokes you're going to tell. Yeah. And I, we do this with everyone we talk to. Like, we, we, you know... We calibrate to each other. Exactly. Or we and should. I, and it's... <laughs> yeah. And I and there are people who, who like, want to say that that's something that's sort of contrary to their values. That, like, no, I have to be me, exactly me, and this is... I'm like that kind of loyalty to yourself like doesn't sound like anything more than selfishness to me like <laughs> just make make space for other humans and and if you got this far without ever modulating your you know yourself in front of other people that's because that is what like that's privilege man that's amazing privilege that like enough people are exactly like you that you works for enough people that you got to do this professionally. That's amazing. It's not even that enough people are exactly like you. It's that the world is shaped around letting you be right. you. Also, yeah, it's both of those things. Yeah. And it's like, it's funny how that's always guys who are like. <laughs> okay, last question. This is another April, May moment. This is my favorite moment from the book, actually. I highlighted it even before I knew I was going to talk to you. This is her talking. It's so much harder to actually define yourself and work to imagine the best possible future than it is to tear down others' ideas. 
that sentence brought tears to my eyes um it's so beautiful and it's so true yeah and i i i wonder is that what you feel like you're trying to do work to imagine the best possible future yeah i think that i think that like like it's hopefully what everybody's doing a little bit and i i think that um you know it is it's somewhat it is of course harder to build than just like it's yeah, harder to build than to destroy, and like that's that is a that is a actual physical principle of the universe. You know, like there are infinite numbers of failure states and very very few success states. You know, <laughs> a way that I, I read a book once I can't remember what it was called, but um, and it just it defined life as far from equilibrium, like uh, stability, and you're like far from equilibrium stability. Fuck. Oh geez, that just rocked my world. <laughs> it's like I feel I feel that a lot in America right now. This is some far from equilibrium stability right now, uh, and and of course there, there there's always going to be a push back to that equilibrium, and that equilibrium is just goop. You know, it's just like slime on the ground, and that's no good. We don't want that. So the uh yeah I, and i so so of course it is easier and it is also more fun your tweet will get more retweets and to be divisive to be divisive yeah and to and to show everybody how bad the thing is as it exists or how bad the thing that other people want is mm-hmm. and um and then when you like start to ask like what are the solutions it's like well it's you know I, like i I know that I think that it's ludicrous that we don't have universal health care in America, but like I understand that it is not easy to remake an entire healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And uh and so yeah, we have to do it, but I also want to recognize that that things are hard and that like and that there are probably, you know, a thousand different things that each have a thousand different ways of being done mm-hmm. in that in that problem solving. Like it's a very easy sentence to say, a very hard uh, system to build. What what role does science have in that? And 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 shows like SciShow and and Crash Course and just trying to communicate that the excitement and the wonder and. Well, I hope that um, like, do you mean like a better world in general or healthcare in particular? <laughs> a better world in <laughs> yeah. general. Yeah, I like. I hope that one, we give people a chance to really appreciate the world, um, because. You know, a thing that is really unproductive to say but is nonetheless true is that to someone 200 years ago, this world would look like a utopia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's like I don't like I'm not out here saying that this world is a utopia, though. Like and so to to understand our part of that process, we're like refrigerators and, you know, pooping and having it go away immediately and yeah, never seeing it one. again. It's so big. <laughs> um, and like that's like that stuff's amazing but also like so is you know the spitzer space telescope and so is the curiosity rover and so is uh but also so is like um the amount of information we've been able to gather about history both recent and very distant and understanding the story of humans better and and understanding the ways in which we've gone wrong and seeing you know the ways in which things you know, on average over time have gotten much better. So I, I think that there there is a there's a sort of dual purpose to the indulgence and curiosity. One is that it is in itself really enjoyable. Um, and then the, the second is that like if as you understand more about the world, you can better imagine 
the future, and you can also better imagine the present. Hmm. Well, Hank, thank you so much for being here with us today. I really appreciate your time and just all the contributions you're making to the project of being awesome on the planet. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. This episode of Threshold Conversations was funded by the Park Foundation, Montana Public Radio, the Society of Environmental Journalists, and the International Women's Media Foundation's Howard G. Buffett Fund for Women Journalists. We're also funded by contributions from our listeners. Join our community at thresholdpodcast.org slash donate. The Threshold team includes Talia Farnsworth, Eva Kalea, Nick Mott, Casey Simpson, and Angela Swatek, with help from Caroline Kurtz, Dan Carreno, Hannah Carey, Kara Cromwell, Katie DeFusco, and Matt Herlihy. Our music is by Travis Yost.